Preparing, preparing, setting it up. One way or another, setting up your webinar for YouTube Live. Thinking, done. And pop, all right. It is live. All right, we are live and uh, welcome everybody. So this is uh, Hanging with CSJ, episode two. Uh, we have our uh, guest, uh, Mark Darian um, uh, from uh, NorCal and uh, he's agreed to be on our show. I was actually on uh, either his YouTube channel or podcast. We're still figuring that out. I think it's his YouTube. And uh, nobody knows. <laughs> no one knows. Yeah. Uh, but uh, that was, uh, it was a great experience, uh, Mark, to, to have that opportunity to meet you and be on that. Thank you for reaching out. I'll be honest, like when a lot of people reach yeah. out, you know, ask to do collabs, it's kind of like hard for me to actually like be comfortable to do that. But like you were just a straight sure right off the bat, like, yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to do that and happy to uh, have that conversation. Um, so yeah, thanks for doing it. Yeah, it's good. It's fun to, to reach out and talk with guys who are as into young as I am. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, young it's is like that I, Michael Jackson song. You are not alone. <laughs> like, oh, there's somebody else here who actually reads all this crap. Wow. Yeah, I know. Right. Well, it's funny, like, cause you know, being that we're in NorCal, we have the opportunity to do the meetup group and uh, which I, which I hope you come to eventually, but it's nice to see that there's actually a sub community in NorCal that actually really has that focus, you know, on Jungian analytical psychology, which is pretty exciting. But as we're growing the community, we're kind of going worldwide here. And it's kind of like, Oh, okay. A little bit more, you know? So how big is that group chase? Oh, shoot. I don't know, Mike, maybe a hundred plus members are in it, but on oh. average, we only have maybe, uh, I think the most people we ever had show up at one time was like 16 people per meetup. Oh. So yeah, I think if I would uh, make my way to the Bay area more often on like the weekend meetups, it would probably be a little bit larger, but since I've been moving around, uh, often in NorCal, it's made it a little bit difficult for me to just randomly show up. So, yeah. but yeah. So, so Mark, uh, Thanks for being on the show. Uh, so yep. tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get into Jung? Uh, where, what is the direction you're taking with? How has it been useful in your life and, and useful for people you know? Oh boy, there's a lot to unpack there, as we say in the podcast world. Um, yes. It depends how far back you want me to go because we can go back pretty far. I was joking with you guys before we started recording. We could go back to 15 when I read Beyond Good and Evil for the first time. And that didn't get me into it didn't get me, yeah, it got me into Jung from there, but it, I mean, that, that was more of a psychological text than anything else. Right. Probably when I was 15, I didn't really get it. I, I don't really remember my first reading. The second and third readings obviously made more of an impact. But I went from Nietzsche, Nietzsche to Jung, and it was just fascinating to me to, to understand. I don't know if this, uh, yeah, this is how it affected me personally, I guess. Just fascinating to me to understand that there's a whole world going on beneath the surface, beneath what I was telling myself that was influencing me to some degree. And it helped explain a lot. Just the idea that there's this unconscious that comes up for you. It influences you outside of your awareness. It's fascinating. Oh, so yeah. that's why when I sit down to do calculus homework for an hour, I, after 15 minutes, I get lost on, you know, whatever stupid thing I get lost on. There's other <laughs> issues there beneath the surface. And I mean, it didn't concretize that, you know, my first reading through, obviously not. Well, yeah, Nietzsche, to some degree, the uh, the will to power, how he was talking about, well, you know, there's this conscious 
reasoning that you have, but there's this unconscious motivation for your reasoning. And it really helped explain a lot for me. Yeah. I, I, from, from my point of view, like I said before, uh, especially, you know, this audience is where I learned it in an effort to save my marriage. It was more of kind of like a survival thing, but what really intrigued me was the idea of the collective unconscious. And from my point of view, when you talk about the collective unconscious, you know how algebra can't work with without zero or the concept of zero. Uh, I maintain that this form of psychology can't work without the concept of the collective unconscious and really opening yourself to that idea that something like that exists is, is absolutely incredible. Especially when you're talking about like symbological similarities across cultures that have never had contact with each other, as well as a similar uh, story like archetypes, even the hero's journey, going all Joseph Campbell right here, et cetera. And seeing how that plays out in daily life from a subconscious or an unconscious point of view, it's still there. And it keeps, um, I guess, some people would say repeating, others would say rhyming. Uh, I don't know what you'd say as a result, but there's definitely something there. We just haven't been able to completely measure it from a scientific point of view. And that's why oftentimes people look at Jungians and they're like, oh, there's those pseudoscientists. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> well, it is scientific, I would argue, because it's observable. I mean, yeah, yeah, it was a huge eye-opener for me. You're talking about the collective unconscious. A huge eye-opener for me to learn that there were different vampires slash zombie myths in different cultures. Like Papua New Guinea, they have their own zombie myth. It's like, oh, maybe this is explaining something else. Right. So I, I mean, right. people say it's not scientific. I mean, there's lots of things about psychology that aren't scientific. The recent replication crisis being one of them. We all thought that was scientific. Turns out maybe it's not so much. Um, but I don't think philosophy is a science. Maybe one day it will be, but I think it's predominantly a, a philosophy. Psychology right. is not a science. I said that incorrectly. <laughs> psychology is not a science. It's pr predominantly a philosophy. Right. No, and, and honestly, I would agree with that, even though I use terminology like it's a science, because the way that I'm approaching Jungian analytical psychology, big data, data is the new oil, they say. And I think by turning Jungian analytical psychology into data that can be tested and replicated and then uh, have metrics built from and reports ran against and queries, et cetera, I think we can actually create a scientific community around Jungian analytical psychology uh, and, and get it to that point. But until then, until we have something a little bit more concrete with which to measure, it's kind of an uphill battle. And oftentimes yeah. I find myself being discredited by my critics because they're like, oh, hey, you're just, this is all just pseudoscience. And I'm like, you know what? You're right. But by the time I'm done with it, it won't be anymore. At least that's the direction that I'm going in right now. You know, uh, and I, I maintain like that's a big, bold claim and I get that, but I really do honestly believe I, by the time I draw my last breath, the, it will be an actual science that you can test and measure against. So that's what I'm hoping for. I, uh, big, big goals. There. Probably not a hard science. Right. I, I don't know. There's terminology here. It's probably not gonna be a hard science, but yes, as far as being uh, testable, measurable, unfalsifiable thing or falsifiable, then yeah, that that's the direction that psychology is going in right now. I mean, look, we got we got to keep in mind it's a very new field. It's 150 years old. Uh, you know, I think we're going to look back how we look back in psychology in 100 years now. People in 100 years are going to look back on what we're doing and thinking like, oh, geez, what, what you know, what are those guys thinking? But right, I think that's right. just the nature of it being a new field. Right. No, I I, I completely agree. Uh, uh, 
I completely agree with that. It's just that um, you say, you know, soft science, we were just having this debate recently, actually, where um, a former, a former co-host of mine basically mentioned uh, on a public forum that I'm a part of. Um, and, you know, the audience knows him as Jab. Jab basically stated that you do realize how hard it is to reproduce other people's experiments, even in the hard sciences. He's a chemist. Um, yeah. And honestly, he's a damn good one. Uh, and uh, that's his, you know, his way of doing things as a chemist. And uh, it's really hard to reproduce other people's experiments. Now, there was, you know, Dr. Dario Nardi who did his brain scan experiments with Jungian psychology that did start the process. Um, I maintain that his results are not exactly potentially ideal because I disagree with how he input his data, but I think his process with his experimentation is correct. I actually desire to reproduce Dr. Nardi's uh, experiments to be able to make it a little bit harder and less soft. But again, predominantly, yeah, I agree with you. Um, it is a soft science, but at the end of the day, I really think, as you say, we'll be able to have that falsifiable, non-falsifiable approach to finally actually get some real answers. And that's why we need a very strong philosophical basis for what, or yeah, philosophical basis for what psychology is. Right. And I think right. without that, it's not going to move forward. I actually just wrote an article about this, the inherent problem of psychological research. And yeah, you know, other, you know, in chemistry, it's difficult to replicate. But the thing with psychology, which makes it a soft science, more of a philosophy is there's just way too many variables. There's way too many variables when you, when you do these uh, studies, way too many compounds, you can't account for them all. So it ends up being much more difficult to replicate. Right. And there seems like there's so much uh, disagreement, even on basic things like uh, t uh, personality type and, and what are the definitions of, you know, interaction styles and things like that. I mean, we can't even get to an agreement on those things. And, that and that's the philosophy, though. Right. That's right. The philosophy. That's right. Yeah. I, I'm so glad you brought up philosophy because uh, we're actually about to publish a book which it's going to be a compendium as, as, as what our philosophy is towards the definitions of everything that the science should become one day, basically. It's like a vision of what the science is going to become and what you could do with it as a result of it getting there. And we want this book to be a textbook, basically, a foundation that lays, lays down the foundation that anyone could utilize to springboard and do their own research with and make it verifiable, falsifiable from that standpoint. Uh, but like I said, I mean, you can't have a hypothesis without actually first having the philosophy to begin with. You kind of have to have that. It's like a prerequisite. You know what I'm saying? Because right. you don't there know- There was a philosophy of science before there was science. There was yeah. uh, Francis Bacon writing out what, what he thought a philosophy of science was. And then we got the, yeah. <laughs> pulling out the Francis Bacon. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Oh, just wow. trying to sound smart. I don't know. Is it yeah, well, you're 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 sounding way smarter than me. That's why that's why I'm glad you're on the show. <laughs> well, I mean For that sure. that's that's knowledge is power, right? That that was a key idea in the Renaissance. Is knowledge isn't just this thing that we you know philosophize. You know, like the scholastics were doing in the Middle Ages. Like, how many angels can fit on the head of a pin? No, that this has actual applications, and this is the method by which we do that, the scientific method, and it was huge. Yeah. And, psychology needs something like that 
Yeah. I mean, most people say like, ooh, this is the new age of Aquarius. We're going to have a new renaissance and a great awakening. I think that in the psychology field, really developing Jungian psychology and really, uh, uh, you know, trailblazing forward with it may actually be a part of that new great awakening or that new renaissance. I mean, we already have Tesla cars out there. Uh, there's amazing technologies. Like for example, you could, with an app on your phone, you could rent an e-bike and get anywhere you need to in a downtown area without having to inconvenience yourself with paying parking tickets. And it's still cheaper than getting a taxi and it's still cheaper than paying for parking. As long as you're like riding for an hour, let's be straight. But then that's how they get you because they realize, oh, you know, hey, you're riding on this bike and you really like it. So you're going to pay us more money because you're using it longer than you realize that you plan on doing, right? But that's... <laughs> That's kind of, it's, it's just technology continues to change. And I think this is an area that really needs to be, uh, you know, a new baseline, a new standard, a new foundation grown. I mean, it's just like, you know, study about uh, food and obesity and heart disease. We're still relying on studies from Ansel Keys from the 1970s in terms of claiming that cholesterol causes heart disease. When you have other sources out there like Gary Taubes, um, David Asprey, and, uh, uh, you know, a bunch of those, uh, you know, as other people would say, uh, pseudoscience, paleo people and whatnot, it's claiming that those studies were probably actually not very good and they're not exactly reproducible either. It's just there was a lot of hype and investment put behind Ansel Keys after the fact. And that's why it became popular because people utilized him as a, his research as a marketing tool to sell foodstuffs. Well, we have to get out of that inherent bias. And that's one of the challenges that we have with any of these approaches. I just hope that we avoid creating a similar bias with Jungian psychology to move it forward. I'll be straight, I'm very concerned about that bias, but that's one of the reasons why I'm so involved because I figure that if I just state the harsh facts, the way that I see them, someone will listen and someone will take it They'll improve upon it later, et cetera, as long as they're like not stealing my intellectual property or at least giving me credit and whatnot, and then moving it forward, that would be great. Or maybe they find something else and I'm completely wrong. I'd be happy to do that because if someone's going to criticize me and tell them I'm wrong, great. Show me the practical application. Oh, you proved it. Great. I will add that to my system and move on to the next thing. Thank you very much, sir. I appreciate it. I'm always willing to take responsibility for my actions in that case. But it's the scientific community, not just some old boys club where, you know, they're very like exclusive, you know, and want to hold on to their point of view. Are they really willing to work with those youngsters who they see as like little upstarts who are like, ow, well, I've worked so hard to get here. What means you think you can come out of nowhere and knock me off? You know, that's always my experience has been in academia when it comes to psychology, especially psychology professors. Yeah, well, that's pretty much all the academia, I think. The, the problem right. is- yeah. that's, that's right. <laughs> As soon as you say that one theory is right, then that implies another other theories are not right. Right. Correct. We don't want to say that in academia now, especially in psychology and other soft sciences, especially especially sociology. Uh, you, you went there. I was going to go there, but you went there first. <laughs> well, I'm interested in reading your book, Chase, because it sounds similar to what I attempted in my book: is laying out a foundation for the field going forward. Yeah, I, I, I do. I do plan on uh, reading that as well. Do you have a link to that, by the way, that I could share with the audience? You just throw it in the, the Zoom chat here and then I'll just copy and paste it right into the uh, stream chat. 
Um, okay, uh, sure. Um, let me uh, let me do that. You can get the PDF version, or you can get the Kindle version. Awesome. I will. I'll, I'll just send it to is. the to the page of my website, and then from cool. there you can get the Kindle version from Amazon. Right? It's on there. Yeah. Sure. Uh, let's see. Just making sure it's on there. Oh yeah, it's on there. All right, so it's just animusempire.com slash ebooks. And you can also pick up my history of philosophy notes, 120 pages of notes that I compiled from college oh, wow. onward. Ooh, that's uh, it's a real snoozer, but there's lots of good information <laughs> in there. And well, I, I, mean, I do think it I do think it is really important if you really want to understand psychology is to understand where it came from and it came from philosophy. So understanding the, the basic yeah. fundamental arguments, I mean, they haven't really changed that much throughout the last 2,500 years. It's just been different, different iterations of the same argument, a little bit different reasoning here and there. I mean, there's some real standouts like, like Aristotle and Plato and Kant obviously really changed the way we look at a lot of things. I, but, if you, but yeah. Oh, go ahead. But I'm just saying, if you want to understand psychology, that's where you got to start. So I have 120 pages of philosophy notes for you. Three bucks. I mean, come on. Yeah. I, hey, man, uh, whatever works. And you're absolutely right. I That is one area that I've only slightly touched on uh, with my content is explaining to people that, oh, hey, by the way, psychology itself really came from philosophy. It, like, cause the old, As far as back as my research goes, um, it goes all the way back to Pythagoras. And then going down the chain of custody through Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Hippocrates, and all the way down to uh, uh, Carl Jung, and then from him to David Kersey, Linda Behrens, uh, Montgomery, uh, Hunziker, uh, and you know, and, and then me, etc. As as that chain of custody goes all the way down down the line. But you're right. I mean, even Plato's Republic talking about temperaments, right? And uh, where you have guardians and artisans, right. he called them thinkers and idealists, etc. Uh, all of that is absolute absolutely key. And people have to remember that psychology did get its roots in philosophy. So if there are any NFPs watching this, especially INFPs uh, or ESTJs or STJ, NFP Quadra folks watching, especially you INFPs, I'm talking to you. Don't think that you don't have any, like, don't feel like you don't have anything to contribute in this area because the more you folks drive philosophy, the more this field of psychology will actually grow. Please remember that because without philosophers like yourselves, we probably wouldn't be here talking about this. And that's absolutely very key. Uh, so guys, realize it's your duty to continue to read and create your personal principles and create a philosophy and share that philosophy so we can keep moving this field forward every single day. So. Yeah. The science is not settled, is it, by any stretch? No, it's not. Honestly, it's a completely new frontier now. It's yeah. it, it, especially when you have technology the way it is now, big data is out there or, and data science, et cetera we're finally in a position to actually make some serious strides. And I've even claimed as part of my own content that the work that we're doing here now, and this sounds crazy, but I think this century, mankind will be able to reach immortality via technology this century as a result of the work that we're doing right now. Uh, now, that doesn't mean I'm a transhumanist because 
I'm not, I'm actually an anti-transhumanist, uh, quite frankly, because I maintain man needs to be mortal, but I'm still very pragmatic with my reasoning and realizing that immortality via technology is very possible, especially looking at singularity theory as purported by Ray Kurzweil, who, run, who used to run or currently runs the artificial intelligence project at Google. If I'm wrong in saying that, folks, please correct me, put it in the comments. I, but that was my initial understanding. But um, he is the de facto leader of the transhumanist movement and, uh, you know, I think that these philosophies that lead to psychology will lead to technologies like that that could change the future of this race forever. And that's why it's so valuable to at least get involved. People need to get involved. And honestly, without having that foundation, as you put out, Mark, we're really not going to be in a position to get involved without that. So it may not, you may say it's a snoozer. I think it's absolutely useful, quite frankly. Well, the philosophy notes are snoozer. The the uh, psychology book that I wrote that's that's really good. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> just, it'll it'll keep you awake. Well, that's good. <laughs> I I hope. Uh, I don't think uh, the book that we're working on is is a snoozer by any means. Uh, you know, and speaking of books, like like I said, we're just going for a textbook uh, format. Uh, most of the work's already done. It's just, it's basically a giant dictionary with a bunch of how-tos and a bunch of definitions and a bunch of introductory approaches and recommendations. And then people can just take it where they want to go there. And then we're releasing a mobile app, hopefully by the end of this year, it's in development right now, uh, to be able to uh, get people the ability to psychoanalyze each other on the fly in, in the span of seconds because the tool will teach them how to use it. The tool won't be broken. The tool will be accurate. It's just how good at the tool are people going to be? And it will teach the user how to use it better so they become more effective. And then we'll be able to generate information as a result and then uh, help people, you know, help them in their lives. But ultimately we're trying to help people discover who they are. So then, as we said before, follow the golden rule, treat others the way you want to be treated. If I'm a certain way, I would like people to accept me, which means I need to be willing to accept others. And that's really the goal behind what we're trying to do. That's the philosophy, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah psychoanalyze yourself first. That's the, yeah. that's the real trick. Figure out what makes you tick and why you really do the things you do. Yeah. It's like and why you really didn't do your calculus homework. Yeah. <laughs> Favorite example of mine. I don't know. I just always come back to calculus homework. Oh, well, I mean, I, I, for me, it's probably trigonometry homework at this point. Uh, <laughs> calculus homework. <laughs> uh, I've been, I've been, I've been playing a lot with trigonometry recently and uh, oh my gosh, uh, how can they like, let's be straight. How can uh, trigonometry professors not let you have a formula sheet while you're in class and expect you to memorize every single one of those formulas when you take a test when i've identified probably 30 plus formulas that you need to know in trigonometry it just seems so unfair to me my goodness I yeah it sounds like a really strict trig teacher on the sat they have the formulas there well that's nice that's really nice i, I don't know if know they that. did that when i was uh, in high school but they do now i know Hey, I was actually just told recently uh, by one of our interns that the SAT was 1600 and then it went to 2400 and now it's back to 1600. Yeah, now it's back to 1600. What is up with that? <laughs> I don't know. They don't know what they're doing. I think they're, they don't, don't want to uh, grade all those uh, papers like because the, the other 800 was for the writing. Like who wants to sit down and grade all those, you know? I know, right? 
<laughs> yeah. Just, that's just ridiculous. Um, all right, cool. Uh, so there is uh, still a writing. I don't know if this mattered. There is still a writing test, but it's not. It's just like grammar and things like that. I don't know. I'm an SAT test? tutor in my spare time, so. Oh, you tutor SAT. I want to talk about the wow. SAT for. <laughs> wow. What's it like being an SAT tutor? Do you like, <laughs> hey, you know, I'm here to help you uh, pass the test. But by the way, guys, you know, what are your thoughts on Jungian psychology? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I try not. I, I, I do bring up Jungian psychology, but only if like it's like a, I use Iron Man and Avengers references, like high school kids are really into Avengers. Oh, sure. Yeah. Like when I was in high school, it was just like nerds who <laughs> were into like comic yeah. book stuff. But now like even regular looking kids are really excited about Avengers. So it's glad when something makes mainstream, I wish uh, people can get excited about Jungian psychology in that matter from a mainstream standpoint. That's what we're trying to do. Make it cool. Right. So, well, yeah. <laughs> at least accessible right. We'll yeah. work on the cool. I don't know. I, well, I mean, uh, it's kind of funny because, like, when it comes to the 16 Jungian uh, archetypes, we're, we're kind of, like, making it look like almost like a game. Like, your archetype is your class, like you'd have in a, in a video game or, or, or a tabletop game, et cetera. And then you have different prestige classes, depending on the four sides of your mind. And if your focus, if your cognitive focus on is on, on this side of the mind, then you're more like that prestige class and kind of developing it a little bit more from there. I think... I think our desire is to make it not only accessible, but kind of fun in that way to kind of just show people that, Hey, you know, just like Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, like everyone's got their own little journey and everyone has their own little approaches and things that they have to learn and grow and challenges that they have to tackle. And we're really trying to make it more of a, a journey approach of self-discovery instead of you're in this box and that's all you are, which is typically what the MBTI has, has done in my yeah, opinion, that's how people interpret it. Yeah, it, yeah, how they interpret it. That, thank you. Um, I mean, Myers Briggs didn't. Neither of those uh, two uh, women, right? They're both women. Yeah. Neither yeah. of them really helped in, in the way that they presented no. it. But yeah, I, yeah, I hear I, all the time. I've, I've heard that a million times, and always drives me crazy. I think the example I brought up to you, Chase, when we first talked is, oh, I can't go talk to that girl because I'm introverted, or I, I have a difficult <laughs> time speaking in public because I'm introverted. People oftentimes use their MBTI type as a crutch oh, yeah. or, they do, or they? an excuse to not do something. And I'm like, no. Right. Like, for example, to the ENTP archetype, the number one piece of advice I tell them is this. If you are afraid of doing something, it is your duty to do it, right? Or, or I, tell, I tell the ESTP archetype to them, I tell them um, any choice is the best choice making any decision because what ESTPs don't realize is that they're master tacticians. They can get through any obstacle or confrontation if the obstacle is in front of them and then they could do it, manipulate and get around or get through it, et cetera. If they try to plan everything out, it's just not really going to work out for them because they're so outcome focused. I need to plan to get this outcome I'm gonna get. And then they get so butt hurt or bummed out that I made this huge plan, but I didn't get the outcome I want. What a waste of time. Why do I even bother when the reality situation is, no, create some chaos. You're supposed to create the chaos because chaos is a ladder, right? Create the chaos, make any decision, see what happens and get the feedback, get the immediate feedback for what's happening. And then you can plot your course through because you're a tactician, not a strategist. And that's what I would tell STPs and NFJs 
all the time to be successful. But a lot of people aren't aware of these different issues. But then you talk about MBTI and they're taking all these tests and it's like, well, well, you're only this way and this is your type and it's just boxes. And everyone just gets so boxed in and they use it as excuses and crushes. And I gotta be straight, it's one of the most annoying things in the world. Not to mention that we've typed probably, we've verified people typing with uh, the rapport method and various other, and the type grade and other methods that we have here to do so. And we verify and verify and verify to make sure that everyone, you know, ultimately leaves the room resonating exactly with the archetype that they should be resonating with and, and, uh, and for that path of self-discovery. But here's the point. What percentage of those people who started taking the test versus the people who, after coming out of a process, what is it? We found out that the test is really only 23% accurate based on the sample size of how many people we've verified already, which is getting closer to a thousand people at this point. So it's, it's really- Wait, staggering. is this a self-assessment MBTI you're talking about? So these, we call it CS verified here. It's where people, uh, you know, they go to csjoseph.life forward slash coaching. They sign up for a, a type, uh, they have their type verified. Like, I, I think I might be this type. Would you go through your process and verify that what type I think I am is actually true? And honestly, uh, over 70% of the time, uh, you know, 77% of the time is wrong. And then they're like, whoa, and they're stunned. And then we give them the resources to verify it for themselves. And they come back like, wow, you're so right. And now I know who I really am. But sometimes it affects people very negatively. Like they have an identity crisis because there's a lot of people out there that put their MBTI type and they organize their entire life around that and judge other people from that perspective. And they actually cause a lot of damage. I was one of those people and I'll take full responsibility for it right here. I thought I was an INTJ for the longest time doing the MBTI box thing. And like, I really destroyed a lot of my relationships doing it. And when it came time for me to realize the truth, I, it was horrible identity crisis, six weeks of turmoil and pain. And, um, I, I, I really destroyed a lot of my relationships with people. And that's when I really became totally committed to Jungian psychology, because it's like, wait a minute, I did all this damage. I need to spend time making sure I'm accurate so I can, I can heal the damage and fix the damage that I caused because like I said, I did it and other people do. People organize their lives around this stuff. It better be accurate if they're going to go that far. You know what I'm saying? How do you counsel people, uh, Chase, that come to you and they they have a different type than what they thought they have had? Well, sometimes they completely disagree with me. And so like, so for example, sometimes like I, when we start the sessions out, I give them like some rules, right? They have to follow. Like I, one of the rules is, is ignore psychology. Just ignore that. We'll talk about it later. Don't even think about that. And also be 100% honest. We have a confidentiality agreement. I'll talk about some of my life secrets. We'll talk about your life secrets. It's completely confidential, right? We'll have that thing. But it, sometimes people are so insecure or they're so scared. Thanks, beautiful. Um, and uh, thank you. Um, <laughs> hey, where's my food? I know, right? I was just, thinking the same thing. That's, that's, that's my wife. Uh, we call her Railgun. She's, she's an amazing, fantastic woman. Um, but uh, but uh, the point is, is that, you know, sometimes they get really afraid or intimidated by me or they worry uh, or they worry about that and they have that insecurity. 
And then what they say, as we're going through the method, it leads to an inaccurate result sometimes. I type incorrectly according to the method, but they're so afraid of showing me the real true self, it can actually inhibit things. So what I do is I just schedule another session. I don't even charge it for it. And I'm like, okay, what are you not telling me? And then they start telling me the real stuff. And it's like, oh, okay, you're actually this. And here's why. And here's how I react to my previous conclusion. And here's how we get to the real conclusion. Because now at this point, you're ready to actually talk. Because they take the information, the first result I give them. They go do the research and realize, no, I'm still not resonating. And then they come back and complain, this is not working. you know. And like, okay, let's schedule another free session and just get it done. And then we do. And they're like, oh, okay, now it makes sense. And then they've learned a big lesson about being honest with themselves and actually knowing who they are, which is what we're trying to do. Like I talk about something called the four pillars of self-intimacy, which is take responsibility for meeting your own needs, have personal standards, you know, the self rules that you have for yourself so that you keep meeting your own needs, have personal boundaries and enforce them. You know, the rules that you put externally to other people so that no one inhibits you from meeting your own needs. And then you can have personal goals. Parents are like, oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? And always goals, 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 goals. In this United States of America, first world culture, when the reality is we need to be asking our children, hey, what are you going to be doing to meet your own needs when I'm no longer meeting your own needs? That needs to be the real way to parent. You don't even know who you are. How are you going to create goals? Yeah, exactly. Sure. How are you going to type yourself? How are you going to take a self-analysis questionnaire? Yeah, I see that all the time. Like, you haven't had a real conversation with somebody in five years. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you're going to go through and, and do it a self-analysis. I mean, it's insane. That's yeah. That's well, you're amazing. just talking about there, Chase, like the denial, the resistance to seeing yourself and talking about yourself and really looking at what's going on. It's, it's a, it's a huge issue. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's, you said it right. I tell this to people all the time. What business do you have being in a romantic relationship, somebody loving somebody else when you can't love yourself enough to take care of yourself first. Oh, I need to meet their needs. And they're not even spending any time meeting their own needs. It's ridiculous. Where's the self-respect? Oh, well, you know, my MBTI type says that, you know, I should behave this way. And oh, there's the excuses. There's the box. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. It's just, that's what we have to keep fighting here with this community. It's so crazy, you know? Yeah, but and I, also I think, I don't know if uh, you guys rip on cognitive behavioral therapy at all, but I really I enjoy it. And I, I think we're also fighting it. against the CBT hegemony. I mean, it's just how much it's influenced culture. And, oh, you, you're in a bad mood? Well, just do affirmations. Or, oh, you have a negative thought? Just oh, change gosh. the thought. And I think this in the long run, although this can be effective in the short term, in the long run, this, this only disconnects from people more. What about NLP applied to CBT as well? What are your thoughts on that? Because I agree with you about uh, CBT being that way. I don't, uh, some people, it may apply to certain others, like INFJs would probably benefit from that because they just have a hard time valuing themselves. But at the same time, it's not a one size fits all, but everyone thinks it is for some reason. I, I don't I don't know enough about it to really- The, the, the way I see uh, NLP was it's, it was an iteration of a CBT kind of philosophy, top down stoicism, you're in charge of your own life, you're unaffected by the external world. And you can change who you are just by changing your thoughts and forcing your emotions to change in a vacuum, disconnected from reality. I, th I think NLP was one iteration of that that nobody really does anymore because it was shown to not be effective. Effective in the short term, sure. Like all CBT can be effective in the short term, but even then, sometimes it's like even not. Like fad diets. 
Right. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. Um, yeah, I, I could put you on a diet and you'll, you will lose weight. You definitely will lose weight, but just as, sure as le- <laughs> just, just as sure as you'll lose weight, you will gain it back in nine months. And it'll be worse. I mean, you mentioned Gary Taubes. You're going to be worse off than you are because now your hormones are, are all out of whack. Yep. Yeah, because you didn't get to the root of the issue. You're focusing on the calories. You're, think, you're not thinking about it correctly. There's this hormonal issue there in your diet, in your body. And the same thing is true with psychology. And you go to a, a typical APA licensed therapist and they're going to give you some form of CBT and it will not get to the root of the issue. And usually it'll just disconnect you from you even more. And by disconnect from you even more, I mean disconnect you from your emotions, you know, from really the parts of yourself that you're hiding from. Right. And it's going to make it worse. It's going yeah. to make it worse. Well, who, who has the guts to humble themselves and realize that they're not all that in a bag of chips to even think that they would even need to have a change? I mean, I, I would see how the MBTI might be a gateway drug to try to get people started on that journey. But then the risk is that they're stuck in boxes and they don't even realize how complex Jungian psychology is. And they just keep going down that rabbit hole and they end up getting stuck. They can't dig themselves out of it. And it's just more of the same. And they still, yeah. you know... What are you doing? Well, Jungian psychology is complex, and but I think that's one of the problems with Jung. And as much respect as I have for the guy, I think I don't throw the word genius around, but I think he was a genius. But it was too complex. We need a simpler way of understanding Not, what Jung was talking about. This yeah. is what, in part, I, what I do in my book. Yes, uh, accessibility is everything. And, and folks, uh, if you're watching, uh, I'm going to put the uh, the link uh, to Mark's uh, book here again. Please check this book out. Uh, I'm going to put it in the live stream chat. It's right here. Um, but uh, but check that out, guys. Uh, and, and get involved with, with uh, the community here for Jungian psychology. Because quite frankly, I maintain it's our duty to understand the difference. Accessibility is a big deal. And we really, really need to have that. Jung, he's an INTP. We verified that in a Patreon private uh, how to type live stream with some old recordings of, of Carl Jung before he died. And he, he's an INTP and I'll be straight, INTPs making things accessible. No, that SE trickster makes it really hard for that to happen. So then it ends up being super complex. But then again, guess what? I'm a hypocrite because I have the same problem. Accessibility is one of my biggest issues. I'm actually trying to learn and train myself on how to make stuff more accessible. It's kind of like what uh, Steve Jobs did with the iPhone. It made it super mega accessible. Now everyone has one. My goal is to actually accomplish the same thing with the technologies that we're developing uh, based on Jungian psychology. But it's such an uphill battle. It really is because you have to keep in mind the audience and there's so many different people everywhere. How are we gonna interface everybody? How are we gonna reach that maximum accessibility? It's not gonna be something that's just gonna be solved in just one lifetime, quite frankly but I'm not going to give up. You know what I mean? I don't think you have to reach everybody. I mean, look at the American revolution. How many people really cared about defeating the British? It was only a small percentage of the people. I mean, I, I think we. The Sons of Liberty was a terrorist group and they were funded by Benjamin Franklin's Junto. And that was a very small, <laughs> uh, very, very small population. So yes, good point. Yeah. yeah. These guys <laughs> who, who, who could change a lot, it was only a small percentage of the population, but I think their heads were in the right place and they did implement really good ideas into uh into a country and it's the first time it ever happened. You know, it doesn't need to be everybody, but I think 
if 5%, 10% of the people just really start thinking about themselves differently. And when they don't do the calculus homework, you know, really ask yourself why, when you don't ask out that girl, you don't excuse it by, you know, talking about how you're an introvert. It, uh, it's a, it can be a really big deal. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. So based on that, um, and your thoughts and, uh, point of view, uh, with Jungian psychology, what areas of practical application would you personally like to see um, that you would think would be probably the most valuable in terms of accessibility, but also giving people an experience that resonates with them, is memorable enough for them, but ultimately helps them? Like, what are those areas, you know? It's like you're uh, passing me these softballs, giving me the opportunity <laughs> to promote myself. But this is exactly what I've, I've been doing with therapy over the past several years. I created this system to do a depth psychology approach to therapy, but a structured depth psychology approach to therapy. Really? I, I know that sounds... I, you talk to people in depth psychology, you go to these Jungian lectures that I go to, and they don't like to hear that. They don't like to hear the S word, the, the structure word with Jungian psychology. But I think if you Why take not? the principles from my book... Is? I'm, I'm sorry? Why do you think that is from a structural standpoint? Well, I think there is a negative connotation of, of the word structure. Like a structure is necessarily confining, especially I think if you're... I don't, I don't know about, um, about Myers-Briggs, but just in from the, uh, the big five personality, you're probably more uh, open. You probably have a high level of openness if you're into Jungian thought. So the word structure and given the connotation in our culture, you combine those things and, oh, it's confining. It can't fit everybody if it's a structure. I think it can right. when we boil psychology down to its fundamental principles. Now, it doesn't mean everybody is the same. But we, we have different experiences. We have different flavors of each experience, but that doesn't mean there isn't a structure there. I think there's a structure to emotions. We all experience the same emotions, you know, a slightly different way, of course. Nobody's exactly the same. But, you know, there's, you know, like I always say, there's a structure for colors. There's only three colors, ultimately. But how those combine and how you can re remove certain colors to create, you know, seemingly infinite number of colors that's why I think emotions work. Right. So I've been working with this kind of therapy now recently, and it's just been really successful. I mean, I don't know how else to say it. I, I can boil down fundamental emotional issues that people have. Now, you know, that doesn't mean that the issue solved, of course. Right, right. But people will spend years in therapy oh, figuring out what actually. Money. Oh, yeah. And the money. Yeah, of course. To, to, to figure out what I can figure out in six or seven, eight sessions. And especially if you go to a cognitive behavioral therapist, they're not even going to be looking for this. Right. They're going to be trying to get, get a plan for your life or, Oh, if you have this kind of thought, change it to this kind of thought. And it's just not effective. The only reason we still do CBT is because we don't know anything else. Just like Ansel keys and cholesterol and heart disease. <laughs> And, and it's, yeah, and just like Ansel Keys and Cluster, it seems obvious. It seems like, oh, if you have a thought, just change it. Exposure right. therapy. How, how could that not be the most effective way of overcoming a fear? Exactly. It I, seems I, obvious, but it's just not how we work. There, there's an X, I don't know if I'm using that, there's an X fact, there's a confounding variable there called emotions. 
and how those work. And until we can address fundamental emotional issues, and the reason psychologists don't talk about that is because you'll go to you'll go to a guy who specializes in, in anxiety. I, I've heard stories like this multiple. You go to this guy who specializes in anxiety. You won't even be able to tell. You won't even give a definition for anxiety or an emotion. Just won't won't go there. Nine out of ten psychologists, you ask them what an emotion is, the first thing out of their mouth will be, "Well, there's no real consensus." And we wonder why there's a mental health problem in America. It's not accessibility. It's you don't know what you're doing. Yes, we're Preach still it. in the dark ages with oh. psychology. It's it's oh. it's like because uh, like, like you think we've evolved that much from lobotomies. Because we haven't. No. We would still be doing lobotomies now if we didn't develop Thorazine. If we just didn't start pumping people full of drugs. I I would even argue that lobotomies, obviously, we shouldn't do them. But they still work better than the Thorazine does now. Wow. That's very humbling. I mean, it's kind of like Isaac Newton, right? The apple falls concept of gravity comes out, even though gravity itself is still technically a theory. And we can kind of measure it. It's the same thing with psychology in this regard. It's just like gravity. Still a theory, but we can measure it. Soft versus hard science, right? But the thing is, the definitions of these things that you're talking about carry within themselves these biases that cause a lot of problems. For example, ADD and ADHD. And I'm very notorious. and I have a lot of critics in this area because I call out ADD and ADHD diagnoses all the time. I'd say a very small percentage of people who are diagnosed with ADD and ADHD actually have the disorder. Or, and I still have to question if the disorder completely and totally exists to begin with, because I still, because ultimately I maintain the disorder itself is a theory, just like gravity is a theory, just like Jungian psychology is a theory, still in its own right but we have laws about it. We have processes, we have systems, we have products and And great drugs and great drugs. And it's when you have an archetype like ESTP or an ESFP or an ENFP or an ENTP types that are just so easily excited because they have uh, extroverted perception hero functions at the apex of their egos all behaving that way and taking all that new information in their heads all the time. And they get so excited uh, about those things. And it's like, okay, yeah, well, you know, we're just going to give you some Ritalin because we realize that your mind makes up the minority. So we're just going to automatically assume that you're abnormal because you're not like everybody else, even though psychologically you're the minority. Psychological minorities exist, but if you're not like the majority, we're going to put you on drugs. That's a problem. And we don't even understand that psychological minorities actually exist. That's an issue. There's a whole new level of racism out there that we're not even aware of such that I could claim every single human being on this planet is actually fundamentally racist, psychologically speaking, and they don't even know it, right? That's a huge issue. And again, these definitions themselves are so arbitrary. Here's my main point. Human beings do not know enough about what normal actually is to be able to elect themselves the judge of what abnormal is. What business do we have judging what is not normal if we don't really know what normal is? That's my biggest issue with it. 
So, yeah, well, I think this goes back to the principles of psychology. We don't even know right. what the principles of psychology are. So until we have yeah. those, what business do you have diagnosing somebody ADD? No, I agree. And I agree. A lot of the diagnosis of ADD is, um, yeah, it's, it's a misdiagnosis. I was diagnosed as ADD in, uh, in college. I was probably about 19 or 20. And it was fun. Wow. And uh, they give you those drugs and they feel good. I mean, it's just like dopamine in your brain. So it's just like love all the time. Yeah. I love this calculus. I'm like, that, that's what it is. It's just I like, love this calculus. It's, it's, it's like, it's like how, a, how a Italian grandmother like gives you food and like, like that's her emotional currency. You're like, oh, so now I associate food and, and those good feelings with my grandmother. Like that's, that's how, uh, that's how Adderall works. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, I, I would say, I mean, you say it's a personality thing. Okay. I understand. I say it's a, an emotional thing. I would say a lot of the misdiagnosis I, of, I, of ADD think, is anxiety. I think both those things are not mutually exclusive. Right. So I yeah, have no choice but to agree with you. <laughs> yeah, it's it's anxiety. That that if right. you look at the at the symptoms of uh, ADD, it those are symptoms of anxiety. And what you find is when people wow. manage those anxiety symptoms, oh, if they don't need the Adderall, they they just coffee is fine, you know. But I I do think in a certain percentage of the cases, and you know, I always. Uh, a little bit wary of talking about brain scans, but you can see there is a lapse in prefrontal cortex function. Pre, can you actually explain that a little bit more? Prefrontal cortex, and it, can you also, if you if you know this, I don't know. I've always wanted to know. One of my friends told me that prefrontal cortexes don't finish developing until early twenties in most people, and how is that affected? And uh, could you explain a little bit more about that? I've always wanted to know more about that. Yeah. So prefrontal cortex, it's, uh, I'll just think of it as the executive part of your brain. It's right here and it controls planning, you know, thinking ahead, like anything that you would consider somebody to be like, oh, wise, or he's making good decisions for his life. He's, it's healthy prefrontal cortex function. You're, yeah. Yeah. I mean, some people say it doesn't develop till 20, 25. Again, I think that relies on brain scans, which are notoriously iffy. But it just helps regulate the, quote, lower parts of your brain. I don't really think they're lower. They're just different. They, they just helps regulate the emotional part. And it's not like, I mean, here's the huge misconception about the prefrontal cortex that a lot of people have. I mean, I don't want to go, go too much for it. into I, it. Um, I'm good, man. I, I'm, I'm very interested and <laughs> I am engaged here. Download it. <laughs> Huge, the huge misconception that people have about the prefrontal cortex is that it somehow stifles your amygdala or HPA access, where a lot of not just anxiety, we used to think it was just anxiety, but a lot of emotions are in there. And it's right next to your, uh, your prefrontal cortex. So the idea behind regulation isn't just about quieting down your amygdala or quieting down your HPA access. It's really about integrating that, creating a strong connection between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala and the more emotional limbic parts of your brain. So how does, so if someone is put on those psychotropic drugs like Adderall, et cetera, how does that affect the prefrontal cortex then as a result? What, what are the what are the impacts over long-term exposure to those drugs going to be? I have a couple of anecdotes to add to that, but I would really like to hear your thoughts about that. Uh, well, thoughts, I don't know if I have any thoughts. Like, like is, does Adderall really ruin your brain? Is that what you're asking? I'm not sure. Kind of, kind of, because for example, uh, like my wife um, has, uh, I think it's a friend of the family 
or maybe a member of the family. I don't remember specifically, but uh, he, they found that he was misdiagnosed with ADD or ADHD. At least that's the general opinion about this person. And he was on the psychotropic drugs for, for decades. And now he's in and out of rehab all the time and having a lot of behavioral issues as a result, uh, especially when it comes to decision-making. Uh, and anxiety, actually, as you had pointed out, which I didn't realize that there was a link between ADD, ADHD, and anxiety. I think that's well, actually something. That's I would my like pet to, theory, but I'm fairly I certain would, I not want, to say that. That's I want to read or research on. more about that because that sounds amazing. I never heard of that before, so that's I. I mean, that's probably my number one takeaway uh, from this. Uh, from this live stream, other than, as you pointed out, philosophy, uh, philosophy is the true roots behind psychology, uh, which, yeah, definitely. Well, read my book, understand how I structure anxiety in that book and the, how the different symptoms appear at, at each decision that we can make with anxiety. If I am correct about that, and I'm pretty sure I am now, it may not be complete, but what I have in the book is cor correct. If I am correct about that, then my view on ADD is correct that it's right. probably anxiety, especially, I mean, look, we live in, in this age of anxiety, especially now with Gen Z. I mean, you know, th these kids are just no attachment, full anxiety. Yeah. You're going to, you're going to present as ADD. Right. And, and to go to your, your wife's friend, you said, is that? Yeah. Yeah. It's a friend. I think it's a friend of the family um, or like a coworker of a, of a family member. I, I don't remember okay. specifically. Well, the thing that to keep in mind with all drugs, I mean, I've heard this a lot with alcoholics. I've done some work with them in a homeless shelter and in other areas. But the thing to remember is that when you take a drug, you are in a sense disconnecting yourself from you, right? From who you are. And so the longer you do that, the, the longer you can go without really dealing with issues that maybe most people will deal with as they're maturing. So, you know, the typical example is, oh, you know, I went through this really big breakup when I was uh, 21, let's say, which a lot of times when people go through a big breakup um, for the first right. time. But if you're tuned out on alcohol or any other drug, you're not going to deal with those emotions that you need to deal with. You're not going to integrate those emotions into your psyche so you're never going to mature from that experience. And you can go decades tuned out on a drug. So if it wow. did affect your wife's friend, then that's probably something that happened. But I thought you were talking about the actual physical impact of Adderall in the brain, which I'm not, I, I, I mean, I the long-term negative consequences of that, which I'm not well-versed in, so I can't say. I'm fine, with, I'm fine with just hearing behavioral issues that could result, that has been observed. Uh, as far as the physical components, I just don't know. Uh, I do know, though, that I've had a lot of people uh, that I trust and who have been mentored me in the past uh, and that I'm close friends with have all mentioned to me, you know, you got to be real careful with people who don't have their prefrontal cortex developed enough in terms of decision making, because that can actually lead to additional stress on your life, Chase, until they have that figured out. Wait until they have that grown, fully grown first, and then engage with them. And I'd often wondered, like, in terms of a Jungian psychology standpoint, from a cognitive sense or cognitive function point of view, how does the prefrontal cortex development actually interface with the development of the parent function or the auxiliary function within the ego? That's always been a, a question that I've had. And now that you're talking about it, I'm really fascinated by this. And I definitely going to 
do some research on it, which by the way, do you have any resources or books that you would kind of recommend other than your own as well uh, that could kind of um, get me in that direction? No, I, I all this stuff I know about uh, ADD, I have from research articles. Like I said, okay. I, I don't really have those. Uh, I mean, they're over here, but I could uh, let you know them later, I, I guess. Yeah, that's fine. I, I'm, not, I'm down for that. That's no issue. And uh, uh, anxiety. I'm just taking down some notes uh, from this for me to review later. And maybe I could uh, create some additional content for the audience. Or maybe we'll have another live stream later date and actually just break some of this stuff down. Focus um, on it, sure. Yeah. Uh, so based on that, Jay, what's your thoughts? Uh, what's your thoughts on, on all of this, especially from, you know, the subject matter that we've been discussing here? Well, just a couple things come to mind. You know, first of all, I think um, a lot of it's a lot about control, teachers controlling students in the classroom who don't fit the mold or the, uh, the structure that we as society want for education. So I think there's a control factor, a reason a lot of folks, a lot of children. Teachers are being lazy. Yeah. Uh, but also talking about per, the potential damage of taking Adderall long term, is that um, enhanced or the potential for damage increased if it starts with a child that's three or four years old? Um, I mean, some children are being diagnosed that young. And so it, it's, it's a concern. Yeah. I mean, when they're taking Adderall, I mean, are they giving three-year-olds Adderall? I've heard of some horror well, stories. I don't know if that's the norm, but it, it may happen. But yeah, if they are, yeah. especially in the developing mind, I'm always very touchy about that because a lot can change, you know, j just like the presence of a mom and dad can change the development of the human mind. So I'm sure a chemical in there, I would assume would do some damage. Right. Well, it, or, Go ahead, Jay. Well, I was just going to say, or even just a child who is diagnosed as ADD and they grow up thinking they're ADD when they're not. I mean, how does that affect their behavior right. long term? And, and once they realize, oh, I never was ADD, it's, you know. Yeah. It's tough. Yeah. If you think um, getting your type wrong is going to give you some <laughs> rationalizations. What about exactly. just going through life and, Oh, I have a difficult time with this chemistry. Yeah. Everybody has difficult time with chemistry. Yeah. It's like, that's, it's called learning chemistry. It's not easy. Yeah. It's not because right. you have ADD. Right. Yep. So uh, if, if you are correct, let's assume for a moment, you're completely correct how would you recommend we would go about implementing the solution in society as a whole to make sure that these problems are not impacting human beings negatively, especially children or young people? Uh, like with ADD, you mean specifically? Yeah. Yeah. And, or, or the anxiety complex or the cognitive behavioral therapy approach. Well, see, I, I think that's part of the problem is I don't know if like anybody besides the parents can really have that much of an impact on the child, especially early on. Uh, the kindergarten teacher isn't going to have that much of a impact. Uh, so I don't know. It's like, it's a, it's a systemic huge right. problem that you can't really solve with any kind of uh, public policy. I, I know they're starting to do that now, yoga and uh, mindfulness meditation in children. Uh, so 
I don't, I don't know, know that. That's uh, that's a little interesting to me. But I mean, if you look at it this way, let's just break it down from an economic standpoint. Uh-huh. It used to be that the dollar had enough buying power so that one human being could uh, be the breadwinner for the home at one point in time. In this day and age, that could be a man or a woman. I, I actually know a bunch of stay-at-home dads. Uh, I've coached them. Uh, they've, they've taken on that role and they've actually been really successful. And the mothers of the children are like, like these career-minded ENTJs, for example, or INTJs who are out there, you know, being the breadwinner, et cetera. And that phenomenon does exist. But typically, if you look at uh, like the wage gap, and I'm not saying that like I'm promoting, you know, you know, uh, you know tax the rich, give it to the poor type of uh, philosophy. And that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is, is that when, when you have, uh, you know, people who are poor uh, in general, like in order for them to actually have enough money to even afford to have a family nowadays, uh, it requires about 2.5 times the income if you're going to use a standard minimum wage model. And even then a lot of minimum wage jobs out there aren't even full time. So you have to have many of them and manage all those schedules at the same time, which creates a high amount of stress. And that's one of the reasons I maintain that the United States of America, our first world society is the most stressed compared to the rest of the world because of those systems. And the stress level for the rest of the world is also increasing because everyone else is adopting the American model. The pro- I maintain that's ultimately unsustainable. The problem is, is that because economically speaking, the dollar has lost so much of its buying power, it's, least, uh, it's lost a thousand percent of its value since uh, the Federal Reserve was created as a result of Jekyll Island. Uh, and people think that inflation is a good thing as a result. This is a problem. That loss of buying power is inhibiting uh, parents from being more directly involved with children and are outsourcing, raising their children to the state, schools, kindergarten teachers, and the like, which is exposing their children to all sorts of risks. How can we empower parents, you know, uh, when, when we can't really do much from a, a public policy standpoint and they lack the buying power to get themselves to that point of view? I, I don't know what to do. You know? Well, I don't think money is going to solve it because it's already a broken I, I, system. So if, if you throw some money in a broken system, it's going to, it's like giving a company that's losing money. Oh, maybe we'll just give them money and that'll change it around. No, they have to change the system. They have to change the way they operate and then they're going to start making their own money. Look, I've, I've said this a million times. Uh, if anybody's listened to my podcast, I say at least five times every podcast, we live in the age of attachment disorder and the kid, the three-year-old, the four-year-old who is uh, diagnosed with ADD, he needs loving attachments from his primary secondary caregiver. That's what his brain needs to develop. Now you don't need money for that. Maybe you need time. You could argue maybe the parents are stressed out, but I think a lot of the, the, the stress management for the parents is their own attachment issues that they are now putting on their, their children. I mean, we became a wow. disconnected society back in the 60s and 70s. I mean, there's a lot of freedom, more wealth. We can move around. You know, you had the, the luxury. If, if you're a dad, you could drive out for cigarettes and keep driving. But I think this created real attachment problems in our society. And it's one of those, it's like the David Foster Wallace, this is water kind of thing. It's such a big issue. We don't even see it anymore. It's just become part of the culture. And you know, I mean, Chase, the people who come to you, they are into psychology. 
they're into improving themselves and they will go, they have gone five years at least without actually talking with somebody about what's going on. Nobody knows what's going on with them. That is a real anomaly in the history of, of civilization to have that. Yeah, we're really wonder why we have these anxiety right? disorders and yeah. sorry. Are, we are very xenophobic as a race. We're afraid of other people within our own race, basically. I can't just, like, it's socially inappropriate for me to just go into a Starbucks, sit down right next to somebody and say, hey, how you doing? Whereas it was socially appropriate to do so in the very early 1900s leading up to the Great Depression. It was very socially acceptable to do that. But you can't do that anymore. And I think it's causing there's a lack of feedback. There's a lack of criticism that's yep. being given to anyone. A stranger should be willing to criticize you and you should be willing to listen, you know, or, or, or not even that just talking about something. I mean, it's amazing. Just talking about an issue. You could say, Oh, I know about that. I don't want to talk with anybody about that. No, like hearing the words pass through your lips in the presence of another face just changes the issue entirely. I have this, a rule with my wife. We, we have this issue. You can buy whatever you want. I, I don't care. You know, you can spend three hundred dollars on a blouse. I don't care. Just come home and tell me about it. Yeah. Tell me how much it cost. I know you know how much it costs. That's not the point. It brings awareness when you just say this blouse with was three hundred dollars, and there's a face right there looking at you. And I would even argue this is why we have brains as large as they are in the first place. We have brains to develop the, these social connections, these complex social connections with each other. And if we go through life, first, we just hide one part of ourselves, then we hide another part. And I'm not, it's not the internet or technology that makes it easier to tune out, but that's just a symptom of the disconnection issue. Right. Well, and that's what I was going to say. I mean, you don't, Chase, you mentioned strangers, but Mark's talking, he and his wife. I mean, you go to any restaurant, husband and wife are looking at their cell phones they don't they don't want to talk to each other they don't want to oh, yeah. with each other and it's it's just getting worse as it seems like uh, your volume is a little bit low there jay but i think we're able to hear you slightly um the uh it, it is it is worse and people are outsourcing a lot of the communication to themselves with everyone else i mean I'll be straight. One of the biggest needs that, uh, you know, that comes as a result of, you know, my marriage, my wife, for example, is that she really just needs me to look at her when she's talking to me or respond to her in a timely manner. Because if she doesn't have that, you know, then she may, she may feel bad or may feel like unwanted or unappreciated or, or, or not a priority. Right. I go out of my way to make sure I respond or, uh, you know, and honestly, as an ENTP, I have a hard time keeping up my attention sometimes, but I learned the self-discipline necessary to force myself to basically stand at attention at times, not that we have that kind of relationship, but to make sure that to know that she is a priority and she's valued by giving her the attention that she needs, especially when growing up potentially, she may not have gotten that attention that she's needed in the past, right? And then she's a little bit starving for it more so than ever. It's really important to someone like her that someone is willing to just drop everything in the moment and help them out, especially since she's been there 
you know, for me and done so much for me. Well, of course I would do that. And that way she continues to feel the priority, but there's a lot of people in their relationships, intimate relationships, parents, family, whatever, they just don't have that. And I, that's my desire with Jungian psychology, at least my approach to it or my flavor of it, I guess, as you could say, is that I'm trying to get people to a point where they understand each other so well that they can actually start communicating with each other because it's, it's absolutely, absolutely necessary. You know, my um, personality type wise, you know, my relationship with my wife, we're not 100% compatible. We're not the, the ideal, uh, we call it the golden pair here. Um, we're not even a silver pair either. It's not about that, but we both know enough about Jungian psychology to at least be able to communicate all of our issues and make up for the lack of nature-based compatibility and use nurture, right? And, and, and kind of meet at that nurture level. But, and that's great. And I'm thankful for that, but not everybody's going to have that. And then people end up having these path of least resistance behaviors to get themselves to that point, you know, within their relationships on top of having all of their preconceived notions and biases to begin with. I've had those definitely within my past relationships, especially with my parents, you know, these are some real challenges. I'm hoping, you know, at a minimum, we together can come up with a way to get that level of accessibility and knowledge to cause some real change. But in terms of public policy, like people are just going to have to learn to outlive the public policy and be willing to create a level of social interaction or social acceptance as well as social defense, where they will actually defend each other as a result of that social relationship that goes beyond public policy. You know what I mean? Yeah, I work on this every day. <laughs> this is all I do. All I focus on is how do I create, I mean, I have the therapy I do, I have groups that I run, and this is what I'm trying to cultivate. I think, well, a lot, a lot of guys in particular, but I think even some women now, they see talking about, let's say, emotions in a sense, it's feminine or it's going to make you weak. And there is definitely a way that you can talk about emotions and, you know, tell people what's going on with you. Like that, that's the real, that's the scary part. I can't tell anybody what's going on because that's going to make me look weak. And the truth is there is a way of talking about what's going on with you that it will make you look weak and it won't be that beneficial to you. So I think a lot of people are even scared to go there because they think, oh, it's automatically a feminine thing or it's going to make me look, you know, quote, weak. So let's just forget that whole thing altogether and I'll just have an extra beer every night. You know, it's like yeah. that's, that's the easier way to do it. But I think once we understand emotions and how they work and what their purpose is, I think emotions have a purpose and they're all structured in the same way to go back to that. Then the way that we talk about them changes. Right. And this is what I try to do in therapy. And, and this is something that psychology, you know, establishment psychology is not even talking about, not even close. Right. But, how, how do you deal with, you know, people who come to you for help or you're helping somebody? How do you deal with people who are so focused on looking good instead of actually being good or looking strong instead of actually being strong? And how do you get over the obstacle of trying to get them to realize, hey, if you knew where your weaknesses are, actually what they were and accepted them then maybe you get over that denial and actually fix the problem. How do you, how do you get over that? I, I struggle with that on a day-to-day -day basis. 
uh, within this community and within my audience and people that I coach on a regular basis, what, what techniques have you been able to develop to help you get through that obstacle with them? Well, as far as techniques, I can't really think of any off the top of my head, but just the general understanding that, look, you have this weakness. If you're going to, if you hide it, it's just going to make you more weak. And it's going to come out later right. to make you look right. even, you know, more like an idiot or more, you know, you, you're really afraid of being a hysterical quote woman. Well, hide this weakness for another five years. You will be hysterical at some point and you won't feel good about it. And you're going to think it's because of you. It's not really because of you. It's just how you manage your emotions. So just first understanding that you can't hide from this stuff. You, you Nobody is so good at repressing. They can repress this stuff forever. Well, I mean, <laughs> you can, I guess. You can become an alcoholic and drink yourself to death if that's what you want to do. But right. thankfully, if, if somebody's coming to, to see me, they, they don't want to go down that road. And they do understand psychology. And I talk about my ideas enough anyway. So they do get it to some degree. But uh, otherwise, I, I just think relationships. Relationships, just slowly and surely creating attachments. Now, first, it's attachment with the therapist. Then maybe it's a close family member or a cousin or a son or daughter. And you just slowly start to create these relationships. And over the course of, you know, maybe a few months, maybe a few years, that that kind of resistance to attachment begins to break down. A resistance to attachment. Do you think that this is one of the reasons why people end up going through midlife crisis? Because unless they yeah. go get, face that insecurity and overcome the insecurity and turn it into a strength that they will have midlife crisis. Yeah, pretty much. That, that's exactly why something in their unconscious comes up. Usually it's, well, I didn't have enough sex with girls when I was 25. So I'm going to make up for it now by getting the Corvette and like pretending in my mind that that's what's going on. Yeah. It's some repressed part of them <laughs> coming up in the, uh, later on. That's, that's really, uh, that's really oh. amazing actually to point out. Um, I think, I think Jay, that would be a really good, uh, blog post actually to talk about, you know? Yes. That, that would be. Yeah. yeah. That's a All right. That. So, uh, um, for, for the audience, uh, Jay has been doing a fantastic job with the articles that he's been writing uh, on the blog at the website. Um, and which, by the way, we're actually going to be offering writers uh, submissions pretty soon. You guys can just go to our website, go to contact us. You see, like, put in a writing submission. If you would like to write an article for, for uh, csjoseph.life on the blog and get it up there, we'll let you submit it. Maybe you can earn uh, either a membership or, or coaching time, et cetera, uh, for your contributions with articles. We'll consider that. But of course, we have transcripting available right now with YouTube hashtag commercial. But, uh, but <laughs> <laughs> that's right. But uh, but Mark, you know, speaking of that, like uh, if you'd be willing to actually maybe potentially write a little bit about that, I'd be happy to post this on uh, on our website with your name as the byline and whatnot, because I think that would be really valuable. You're bringing up some really good practical points. Like, like what causes a midlife crisis? Yeah, just things like that uh, from your point of view, because I, I, I take I'm I mean, I'm pretty hard and deep into, you know, personality type and the like. But the way you're approaching it is a more practical approach that it's like, OK, I may not all know all these things about Jungian psychology, but here's the real issues right now. Here's the reality of the situation. Here's what we can do to fix these now. And as you said, from that emotion standpoint, 
I think that'd be really valuable. You know, I feel like, I yeah. feel like it, it would be something of value. So please consider it. You don't have to, uh, but uh, getting the word out from that point of view, uh, I think it's really necessary because this is just not, a, it's not just about me. I, I think people need to have better ideas about these things. I mean, we've talked about anxiety and ADD and ADHD and public policy and uh, midlife crisis. These topics are practical. These topics are ultimately like, they're good places where it can get the conversation started, right? And uh, so if you're willing, um, but otherwise at a minimum, everyone can just go to your website and check out your book anyway and get more involved from that point of view, as well as your podcast. Um, how, uh, how would anyone get to your podcast, by the way? Animusempire.com. Click on the podcast link at the top. It's available on iTunes. It's available on YouTube. Okay. My YouTube page is available from animusempire.com. Okay. So animusempire.com, I put that uh, link in the uh, live stream chat. I've also uh, put in uh, your book link uh, one more uh, one more time uh, as well uh, for the audience to check out. Um, okay, so we're getting to the end of our show here. Uh, I, I wanted to see if uh, anyone in the audience, uh, if you guys are listening or watching, I know the uh, chat is pretty busy right now. Uh, does anyone have any questions for uh, Mark here about uh, his work and uh, and the like? Uh, has um, uh, in terms of uh, like any specific questions, uh, you know, in terms of uh, his work or maybe how it com uh, compares to some of the work that I've done as well? Uh, now would be the time, guys, if you have any questions. I know there's like a what fifteen to thirty second delay, um, so. Um, apparently a troll has been caught in the uh, chat and uh, has been, uh, I don't know, muted or something for five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> we, we get lots of those here in the community, let me tell you. Um, so we're going to give them a minute to respond. Uh, we we oh. need trolls. I think they're a really important part of our culture. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so we have uh, K2 Zapata. Um, says, uh, what are the top three books that Mark would recommend uh, to review? Oh, boy. Um, I, like I my, told you they like books. <laughs> yeah, my, my top books. I mean, just as a basic understanding of psychology. Is, is that what they... Is that what they're asking? Yeah, uh, yeah, or or in general, like it, it could be because I tell people to read book, read Crush It by Gary Vaynerchuk, and that's a marketing book, for example, right? So, uh, it could be in general, um, uh, but uh, yeah, have at it. Top three books, and from your from your thoughts in terms of the context. Well, just in understanding how the mind works, I guess I would recommend how the mind works. Also, okay. <laughs> the, the blank slate, just as a good just overall um you know more accessible than a textbook but maybe not totally accessible just understanding how your mind works and what's really going on i think those can be really helpful but it's complicated it's not that applicable like you're not going to read how your mind works or blank slate and you know it's not going to be that practical for you but as, as, in terms of overall overall understanding i would definitely recommend those um I really like Brothers Karamazov. I just wrote a, re a review of that book, but in terms of understanding psychology and what people need to go to through to change, 
I think Dostoevsky was way ahead of his time. I mean, I'm not the first one to talk about how Dostoevsky was a genius psychologist, but Brothers Karamazov, I'm, I'm just recommending that because I've just been writing this book review about it and I've just been getting goosebumps thinking about what a great book that is. Oh, man. All right. I I actually need to brush up on it. I, I spent a lot of my, you know, well, where does Soren Kierkegaard fit in there, um, if at all? Uh, I, I don't know enough about him to say. Neither do so I. Gonna... That's why I'm asking. <laughs> I really don't know much. But, but he was an existentialist, been... right? Right. But it's more of that philosophical standpoint, right? Being the root behind psychology. Uh, no. The audience has really been pressuring me to actually look more into Soren Kierkegaard uh, because some people have said like, oh, Chase, you know, some of the things you've said, it's kind of like very similar to that as well. Uh, oh, uh, and, and anything by Jung, of course. Sure. I mean, that, yeah. that goes without saying. Sure. Okay. If, it, if it doesn't make sense the first time, then read it a few more times. It'll start to make sense. Okay. So we got a couple other questions for Mark. Uh, Starry Nights asks, uh, what is Mark's thoughts on Freud? And, uh, and does Mark like cats? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> cats? Like, is there cats. a psych- is, like, like an CATS? animal? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, cats are okay. I'm, I'm more of a, a dog person. I can um, see that. We have a dog. I mean, she's, she's annoying, but uh, she's, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, you can, I have mixed feelings on dogs, um, Fair enough. but I, but we have one and I, and I like her. Um, what was the other question? Thoughts on Freud? <laughs> oh, Freud is really important. Um, and I think Especially we talked about Chase. to Young. Oh, uh, well, as compared to Jung, Jung was much more help. I mean, the, the thing you have to understand the difference between uh, Freud and Jung, I mean, there's, you know, there's lots of difference. You can look up like the five main differences between Freud and Jung. What's really important to understand is that, well, they both understood that there's this unconscious there and Jung thought that we could make sense of it. Freud didn't. Freud thought therapy was just like a release valve and you could go in and do your free association and that was it. There is no way of really living in our society uh, without some sort of neurosis, unless you're going to therapy, right? Releasing the pressure of being in society where Jung had the, I think, revolutionary approach of saying, look, there's this unconscious there. And I know it doesn't make sense. Maybe if we look at it in terms of archetypes and dreams and symbols, we can make sense out of this and actually integrate it into our psyche. That, that was, I think, why, why Jung was a genius and Freud Maybe not so smart, but like I like we talked about, you, we we needed Freud to get to Jung, and I, and Freud's initial uh, insights when he was looking at hypnosis with Charcot, I think that was you know really a big deal, and just to turn that into something that we call psychotherapy today. So, lots of uh, respect to Freud, but I think Jung was just uh, he had better insights. That's that's very fair, and I would. And I would agree with that for sure, uh, especially in terms of, uh, you know, really comparing the two, but you kind of ha- can't have one without the other. Kathy uh, Klimko here asks, what are Mark's thoughts on the book uh, titled Attached, The New Science of Adult Attachment and How It Can Help? Have you heard of that book? Talking about attachment styles? Secure, I, I think I, I, I've heard of it, but um, yeah, the, there's different kinds of, there's secure, anxious, avoidant, things like that. Um, 
all you really have to know about attachment, I mean, there's different styles, sure. And a lot of those that we, we do learn from our parents. Right. Um, you know, like my favorite study to, uh, to talk about is when a mother's afraid of dogs, then her child is going to be afraid of dogs. Like 100% because the child is just emotionally imprinted on, on what the mother is feeling. And so the mother learns this and says, oh, okay. Well, I'll just pretend to not be afraid of dogs. And it has no effect. The child's still going to be afraid of dogs. The child can pick up on the mother, especially because they're more emotional. I don't know. Take that as a denigration now. No, that's good. That women are more emotional in a way that makes them better than men. And and children can pick up on that. And it doesn't matter if you're acting or or it doesn't matter. The anxiety is there. The child is going to pick up on it, and that can have an, have an effect on how on your attachment style later. Now it's not your mother's fault, and you know this is always a very tricky situation that maybe takes a couple sessions of therapy to really nail down. It's not your mother's fault that you have that attachment style now. Um, she's not to blame, even if she was the one objectively who caused it. And it's no fun to go there, but that's the truth of it. That's your attachment style now. And it's something for you to work with. And I would argue that we can all get to at least a more secure attachment style. You know, I'm, I'm not so naive as to think you can change your, your entire emotional profile, but you can do a lot. You really can do a lot. I think you will be surprised to the extent that you can change your attachment style from anxious to secure. Um, is it going to be perfect? No, it's not going to be perfect, but you know, that's okay. It's like learning a language. If you don't learn a, a new language until you're 13 or 14, you're always going to have an accent and it's going to be there, but it's just a matter of to what extent you accept that as part of who you are. You know, do you yeah. try to hide it and be really weird about it? Or do you be like Arnold Schwarzenegger and make it a part of your personality and people love you for it? Right. So, but, yeah, but it I, all comes to down to, yeah, how honest can you be uh, about what's going on with you in regards to the key issues in your life? And that's what we do in the therapy that I do. Yeah, I, I you know, if I if I could respond uh, to that, I, I completely agree. Although I'll be honest, I kind of feel bad because I am one of those people that did blame my mother uh, for that thing. I, it's I'll a, take it's an important stage to go right through. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah, it's okay to do that. I, uh, I mean, the audience knows as much as anyone else knows. I'm not perfect. Um, and I actually have used YouTube to actually complain about my mother and my upbringing. Uh, and uh, she even called me one time really upset at me that I <laughs> would say some things one time. But, but honestly, uh, you know, I learned that at the end of the day, as much as anyone needs to learn, the person who's really responsible is the person I see when I look in the mirror. And it's really humbling to kind of really get yourself to that point of view. I can't be, I really, at the end of the day, need to take full responsibility for my actions and behaviors and not really blame other people, even if they may have caused it. Because still, at the end of the day, I have the freedom of choice to change it. I may not know how, but if I'm trying, eventually, you know, ask, seek, knock, and the answer will be given to you. Eventually, I'll find it as long as I don't give up. And I think that's what people need to realize. Yeah. Uh, and I, I just want to add, it's really important because somebody may be listening and, and they may be nowhere near 
that. They're like, no, my mom, she messed up or my dad who beat me, especially when your parents beat you, right. you know, it's tough. And, you know, even worse stuff like uh, sexual abuse, right? It's tough. So even if you can't take responsibility now, that's fine. It's a process. It takes a while to get to that decision. Just because you can't make that decision now, it, that nothing wrong with you. In fact, I, I, you'd be inhuman if you could just make that decision with a snap of the finger. I, I wouldn't believe it. It's a process to get to that point. That's all. I, you know what? That's a very freeing thing to understand, uh, to, to have you uh, explain. You know, and it's also very movement point of view as well. Uh, it's one of the terms we use here often the process, not necessarily the outcome. A lot of people, especially at least half this audience, are very outcome focused. And if they can't get the outcome they're looking for right now, they're ignoring the journey. They're ignoring the process that it takes to get there. And that's, but the thing is people are very process focused, oftentimes ignore the outcome. They don't get to the outcome they're looking for either. So it's a trade-off and we kind of have to align ourselves and really get over our insecurities and our worries to be able to access those other sides of our minds yeah. or who we are or our personas to get to that point. I had to, yeah. you know, and, and, and mom, if you're watching, I love you very much. Uh, I'm sorry for judging you in the past uh, and I am taking full responsibility for my actions. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, everyone, we have to be willing to hold each other accountable, but at the end of the day, we also need to be willing to hold ourselves accountable and, it took me a long time to go through the process to get there. It took me, wow, over a decade, at least maybe more, you know? So. Yeah. Depending. I, I usually say it's, it's five years. If you really, it depending on, on the amount of trauma somebody goes through, depending on the temperament, you know, sometimes people go through it in, in six months and just like, don't want to talk about them because it just pisses everybody else off. But. Right. No, I, I completely agree. Um, let's get like one or two more questions in and we'll close it off. We're coming up at our 90 minute cutoff here. Just double check if there are any other, um, uh, uh, someone asks, uh, what are your thoughts on split personality? I'll just give you some choice to answer. We'll just do one more question. So I'll just give you a bunch of the questions and you can just pick whichever one you want. Uh, what are your thoughts on split personality and how it correlates with four sides of the mind? Or another person asked, what is Mark's uh, favorite conversation to to uh, topics to open up with anyone uh, is another one that we've had. And then uh, an odd question about a pet monkey. I'm not going there. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, let's see, are there any other, oh, there's, oh, I see. Do you think people uh, see themselves differently and have a bias towards themselves and that inhibits them from uh being able to take responsibility it's another starry nights question although i'm paraphrasing um so just uh i don't know pick um, one and run with it <laughs> yeah well how do i like starting off a conversation yeah um, yeah okay I, I like talking about the weather <laughs> i think that's really important because i i mean I, you know, I understand where the question's coming from, probably social anxiety. What do you talk about with people? Right. It's not about what you talk about with people. It's just about talking about stupid things like communication. It's an emotional interplay more than anything else. A lot of books about communication out there tell you what to talk about and how to listen. Well, if you're not going to be there emotionally, then it doesn't matter. 
That's well, any, true. Any sort true. of conversation, communication technique, it's not going to matter. If you want to get better talking with people, which I'm inferring that's what that listener really wants, just start talking about the weather, getting comfortable. Hate to use that term vibe, but I live in California now. So vibing with other people, feeling them out and just going from there. If the conversation seems to be going well and stopping, if it doesn't, you know, but I I just think like small talk, we always say, oh, small talk. Let's talk about real issues. No, I think small talk is really important. There's so many people out there that like all the time, like I hear this from people who identify as like ENTJs and INTJs or even NTs in general, like the NT temperament, the thinker temperament, according to Plato, for example, they're like, ah, I hate small talk, small talk sucks, et cetera. You know, it, you know, and there's those people who are predisposed to have that point of view with their point of view and present, do you still maintain it's, it's important or should they, if they, if they just don't want to, that's their choice, that's their thing. Or, or in general, like, I mean, if you're not emotionally invested, what's the issue? Or is it really these people, the NT's saying like, maybe we should be emotionally invested and then skip the small talk and get right to the emotional aspect of it. Is that what they're really saying? I, I don't know how to interpret that. Um, yeah, I guess I, I don't really know either. I just think that the small talk is the way to become emotionally invested. Like everybody's favorite part of the movie isn't the opening scene. Well, maybe in some movies, I guess. But it's, I, I really like the opening scene personally. No. <laughs> but, but, but it's, you know, like the split between act two and act three. That's that's usually the best scene in the movie, like the real denouement part of the movie where a lot of the conflict comes to a single point. That's what people like. But you need act one and act two, you know? And I, it's just how we work if you just went into a movie and they just had the best scene it wouldn't right so i think your your desire to get into deeper topics with people you know just ease into it it's i just think just like being really comfortable like being really calm and still talking with a complete stranger at the bus stop let's say about the weather that's a real you know that that's a real great place to get to so you're so what you're saying is if i may translate uh do something any make a choice to communicate something and then see where it goes because if you don't do that nothing is going to happen is that kind of where it's coming from or yeah we got we got to talk to people small talk i think is great yeah i mean that's part of you know we, we've been talking about sharing deep dark secrets and oh you have to have the secure attachment that's good but i mean just saying hi to some old lady at the bus stop it'll change your day especially if you don't do it that often Right. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I, our race, like I said earlier, just has to get over our, our xenophobia because it's like, it's like, it's like, um, I've been asked recently a bunch by people who need dating advice and I literally tell them, go get some new friends. I'm like, well, what are you talking about? Go make friends of your own gender. Go to meetup groups, make new friends, find out the real friends, not the ones that are just people are just trying to get something out of you. And then when you make lots of good friends with your own gender, they will refer people that you would probably want to date because they see the external you that you may not be aware of and match the external you to someone they know, you know. Yeah, I mean, there's the practical purpose, but I think there's a real psychological purpose of doing that too. And I, I could talk about this for 9,000 hours. <laughs> like, yeah, guys have a dating problem and that's how, that's their foray into mental health. 
when, yeah, that's just the problem on the surface. There are these other problems here, like separation from your parents, actually having friends. Like, dude, you don't even have any friends. You think you're going to get a girlfriend? You think that's going to go well? Like, you yeah. haven't separated from your parents. You're still blaming uh, your dad for your issues, and you don't have any friends. Yeah. Like, like these, are, these are stages of adult development, and they go one after the other after the other. Let's walk, not run. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Well, that's fair. Um, and uh, thank you very much, Mark, for coming. This has been a fantastic. Yeah, thanks for having me. Really. Yeah, and the audience, uh, the audience, other than the trolls, I think they've really. Uh, I wasn't they've... being sarcastic about the trolls. I, I do think uh, they're important. I, I like fine. that they exist. <laughs> well, it keeps it keeps drum up fresh. emotional issues. <laughs> it <laughs> may not be the most delicate. You know, may not actually get to the heart of what's going on, but they sense that there's something that they can like a reaction they can get. And they do that. Yeah. Anyway. Cool. Uh, uh, so uh, any gentlemen, any final thoughts before we end of the show? No, thanks for having me. I appreciate it guys. Jay Chase. Yeah. Great show. Thanks. Very All much. right. Well, thank you gentlemen. Uh, much appreciated. And those of you watching, uh, please subscribe to the channel, uh, hit a like button, please leave a comment. Uh, and uh, again, uh, check out uh, Mark's book at animusempire.com forward slash ebooks, as well as his Animus Empire podcast to continue the conversation from his point of view and his approach to Jungian psychology. And uh, also, if you guys have any recommendations on guests that you would like for hanging with CSJ, uh, we probably do one once a month, et cetera. Uh, we'd be happy to have them. And uh, Jay and I, uh, or even sometimes Raka, or all of us will be present uh, to uh, hang out and uh, have those discussions. Abby, real fantastic. Um, and uh, so, uh, so thank you, Mark. Thank you, Jay. And uh, thanks to everyone else. Uh, and uh, with that being said, y'all have a good night. <laughs>